you you can have a, a life that's full of suffering right up to the end. Um, but having the, the psychedelic therapy offers a way of improving the quality of life while you still have it left. You know, you can actually live and experience, you know, what we are supposed to experience as opposed to just suffering until it stops. <laughs> Hello, everyone. Welcome to Field Tripping. Today's episode is anticipated to be really special. We will be talking with Thomas Hartle, one of the kindest spirits I've had the pleasure of meeting, who changed the course of history and the fortune of hopefully millions of Canadians, but for probably the most unfortunate reason. So stay tuned. But first, let's get into some news to trip over. First, research has discovered that when psilocybin works, its antidepressant effects tend to be enduring. Unlike other drugs that need to be taken daily to have an effect, psilocybin seems to induce a robust, fast-acting, and lasting response after a single dose. A study out of Yale showed that when psilocybin is given to mice, it quickly increases the number and strength of connections between neurons in particular brain regions. No, ketamine does this too. This increase is sustained for at least one month following a single exposure to the drug, suggesting that the beneficial effects of psilocybin might be driven by these neurological changes. If you wonder why we are doing what we are doing at Field Trip, you should have a good sense of the answer now. Michael Pollan, author of How to Change Your Mind, recently published a new book called This Is Your Mind on Plants. In it, he explores three different types of drugs, opium, a downer, caffeine, an upper, and mescaline, an outer. He uses these three examples to discuss our complex relationship to nature and drugs. He also published an opinion piece in the New York Times, and he was interviewed by Tim Ferriss and Joe Rogan on their podcasts. Michael has been a wonderful friend to Field Trip from our earliest days, so I have no compunction shamelessly promoting his book, because not only am I excited to read it, there are few people more articulate or thoughtful on the subject than Michael Pollan, so please go out and buy it. Finally, even though anecdotally we've known that psychedelics can change your beliefs in the metaphysical and spiritual, a new study seems to confirm this. The study, conducted by researchers from Imperial College in the UK and others in Australia, confirmed that a person's beliefs concerning the nature of reality, consciousness, and free will change following psychedelic use, as people moved away from materialist viewpoints to ones that reflect various philosophies such as panpsychism, which stipulates that every material thing has some element of consciousness. This is great news, because the more people who realize that this great human adventure is the evolution of consciousness, the better this adventure is going to be. Now, on to our conversation with Thomas. Thomas is a husband, father, and the first Canadian in 50 years that received permission to use psilocybin legally for medical purposes for end-of-life distress due to incurable cancer. Never having used medicines like cannabis or psychedelics prior to his condition, he has found profound value in these alternative therapies and hopes to reach as many people as possible with his story. Thomas believes psychedelic use could change the world, and taking a look at his personal journey gives us a glimpse into the future to see how and why that is going to happen. Thomas, thank you for joining us today, and welcome to Field Tripping. Hey, Rowan, thank you very much for having me. 
Uh, it really is my pleasure. Uh, we'll get into it more a little bit later on, but for for those people listening, Thomas and I have been working together, uh, mostly Thomas and me sitting in the background listening to his uh, inspiring story and watches the faces of politicians change as he speaks, um, and, and lobbying the Canadian government to hopefully increase access to psychedelic therapies soon. Uh, but we'll get into that a little bit later. Before we get into that, I only know you for those conversations and the, the articles that have been written about you on uh, the CBC and, and various other media platforms, but I don't really know you very well, Thomas, other than to say your energy is very gentle. Um, the work you're doing, I think, is is truly a godsend, um, and it's been a privilege being beside you in all these conversations. But could you tell me your story? I, I, I would love to hear your journey from as early as you want to go and, until now. Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> well, it all began in a sharecropper shack down in... <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were going to say it was a dark and stormy night. <laughs> yeah, you know, um, I, I guess, uh, boy, where to start? I, uh, I've always been somebody who, who feels that it's uh, very important for us as humans to contribute to, you know, our, our society. Uh, because I feel like the world is uh, exactly what you make it to be. There are an awful lot of people out there who, you know, just sort of uh, feels like they coast through life. Life happens to them. Um, For me, life is very much more an active process. So uh, I started uh, that approach probably back when I was in college. Um, Okay. And uh, for me, this, uh, you know, journey into uh, sharing things uh, started with simple blood donations. Um, I signed myself up for uh, the bone marrow registry back when I was uh, learning how to be a professional nerd. And uh, you know, I've, uh, I've been uh, very blessed and fortunate for pretty much my whole life. Um, I, I don't know whether I've mentioned it before, but I've uh, been privileged to actually be a uh, an unrelated uh, stem cell donor for a uh, another oh, wow. person who uh, had a blood-related cancer. So uh, really, this journey with cancer, for me, starts kind of there. Um, okay. I, uh, I wow. uh, matched up with uh, somebody who uh, happened to be a mother of four and... Uh, and uh, you know she uh, managed to uh, live another 15 years following her treatment. So I've had wow. this unique experience to be able to experience cancer both from uh, the side of helping somebody else who has it and also my own journey as well. So wow. it's uh, it's been interesting. I imagine so. I, I I'm I'm very cognizant uh, in this conversation that you know, and I'm imposing this upon you, but. I don't want you to be defined by your cancer, even though that is the, um, you know, foundational consideration of all of the amazing things that have been happening recently. And I say that very consciously as well, because it sounds like you've done a number of amazing things in your life. So this is just kind of the last most recent chapter in in some respects. Um, So I want to know, like, 
you live in Saskatchewan. Did you grow up in the prairies? Like, what was what did you am, aspire to be growing up? How did you end up being a professional nerd, as you, <laughs> as you call it? Um, and take us through some of the highlights of of your actual life experience. Like, I want to know your your story for sure. So, I uh, grew up on a farm. Um, I am originally uh, adopted. So, uh, okay, way way back when I was born. Uh, I, I uh, was fortunate enough to be uh, adopted by a, a wonderful couple who uh, lived on a farm, and I grew up there for the first 18 years of my life. Uh, school in a small town. I uh, I bought my very first computer. Gosh, before the schools even had them in stock. I'm going to really date okay. myself here when I tell you that my first computer was a Commodore VIC-20. May not Ooh, have even okay. heard of one of those, but. Uh, it was a pretty amazing machine. No. It had a, a whopping 8K of RAM in it. <laughs> oh. So when I got a computer a Commodore 64 with 64K of RAM, I was, uh, mm. I was way ahead of the curve. Pretty right advanced, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I, I really caught the uh, computer bug early in life. And uh, I, yeah. I pretty much knew that that is the kind of thing that I wanted to do because uh, it's very much second nature to me. So... I uh, taught myself how to program. I uh, I then went on to college and uh, took uh, business admin with a computer science major. And uh, I found that okay. uh, uh, helping people understand technology was something that was very easy for me to do. Uh, going through high school, uh, I uh, took part in a lot of uh, drama. So uh, that right. was kind of uh, where I like to... Uh, you know, spend my recreational time. I uh, was a ski instructor for a while. Um, I've, uh, in Saskatchewan? In Saskatchewan, believe it or not. <laughs> yeah, Saskatchewan really? don't really have uh, hills so much, but uh, there's a, a valley close to where I live, and they uh, they have a ski lift that takes you to the top of the valley, and you ski back down into it. So. <laughs> <laughs> for, for anybody not, uh, for anyone listening who isn't familiar with Saskatchewan, it, it, it's basically flat and straight and and so i'd never actually heard of skiing in saskatchewan i guess truthfully you know ontario skiing is probably no more remarkable than <laughs> saskatchewan but ontario isn't quite as defined by its flatness uh, as saskatchewan is so that's why it was a little bit surprising but that's awesome yeah yeah um when i was uh, growing up my uh, my parents used to uh, take us to uh, jasper or or banff Every uh, once in a while. So, okay. you know, we'd get to ski on uh, real mountains once in a while, which was always <laughs> pleasant. Um, Excellent. Let's see. I have uh, been a, a science nerd pretty much my whole life. Uh, you know, I okay. did science fairs all through uh, high school, and I got to participate in uh, the national levels with that. So, uh, cool. I've really nice. just had this whole collection of very interesting and fun things that I've gotten to do my whole life. That's amazing. Any particular ones stand out right now uh, besides, you know, doing drama or uh, working with technology, any particularly vivid or candid moments? <laughs> well, uh, I, I know you don't want to, uh, to uh, focus on that uh, whole cancer thing, but uh, I have to tell you that uh, after I made my stem cell donation, you, uh, you have to wait for about a year to find out whether your recipient uh, was able to survive the procedure. And following that, I had a okay. chance to actually meet with my, uh, with my recipient. Uh, this is kind of a 
an example of how my life is statistically improbable in so many ways. So uh, I remember I told you I, I signed up for that uh, bone marrow registry when I was in college. And uh, I yeah. did that because uh, it's a one in 30,000 chance that you'll actually match with somebody. And uh, being adopted, I kind of thought that, uh, you know, if I match with somebody, this uh, one in 30,000 chance, maybe I'd be uh, related to them in some way. You never know. Right. So yeah. uh, I, uh, I signed up for that. And uh, years go by, um, they invented the internet. And I signed up on uh, one website that I found where you could put in your uh, known adoption information. Okay. More years go by. I moved twice to different cities and never updated my information on this site at all. And the owner of the site got a hold of me. Um, apparently, my sister, my biological sister, went to the same site that I went to on the Internet and entered in my information on there, and we got a match. So I wow. uh, had a chance to uh, call my biological family, uh, who I learned lives in Nanaimo, B.C., at, uh, at least on my okay. mother's side of that family. So I uh, had a chance to visit with them for a number of years, and uh, then I got my call from the bone marrow registry that I had matched for somebody there. Uh, when you match for somebody, then they do a second level of testing to see whether it's uh, a good enough match to donate. And uh, the person that I matched with was uh, a perfect 10 out of 10 genetic match for me. Um, some siblings don't even match that well, but uh, I wow. happened to match perfectly with this person. And uh, they gave me a uh, choice of where to make my donation. And one of the choices was Vancouver. So I uh, went out to Vancouver, made my, uh, my uh, marrow donation there. And uh, while I was out there, my biological family came over from the island and uh, had a visit with me. So as a result wow. of signing up for the bone marrow registry, I got to meet my biological family. Wow. That's, uh, that's uh, a nice reward. Uh, that's, that's amazing. Uh, how old were you when you discovered uh, or reconnected with, with um, I guess, finding out that you had a biological sister and then reconnecting with your, your family? It's uh, getting pretty close to, I think, about 17 years now. So okay. it's, uh, it's been a while. Kind of hoping yeah. that uh, you know I'll be able to uh, make it back out to the island here, maybe after this COVID stuff uh, blows over, and uh, have a chance to have another visit. For sure. What was it? What was it like uh, reconnecting with your family? Yeah. I can imagine it's bittersweet as like the the description, but I'd be curious to know what what it was like. Well, yeah. I mean, um, when I was given up for adoption, uh, my biological mother was like sixteen at the time, so. I mean, obviously, okay. uh, in uh, 1968, very different circumstances from the way things are these days. And, uh, yeah. you know, you would not expect uh, somebody to be, you know, raising a child at that age. So, I mean, um, a number of my friends where I grew up were also adopted. So for me, being adopted wasn't really that big of a deal. Um so okay. reaching out to uh, find my biological family, I think, was probably a little more stressful for my mom and dad, um, you know, because they they weren't too sure my reasoning for wanting to do that. You know, they uh, 
of course, were a little uh, worried that uh, I wasn't happy with my uh, life circumstances and I was looking for a new mom and dad or something. But uh, for yeah. me, it was really just, uh, you know, genetic curiosity. You know, is there anybody out there yeah. who looks like me or, you know, uh, who uh, thinks the same way as I do or anything like that? So um, it was uh, you know very interesting to, you know, to, to find that I've got uh, sisters out there who've got, uh, you know, the same sort of a sense of humor that I have. So. Things that yeah. you you okay. don't get necessarily when you're uh, when you're adopted. Yeah, yeah. I was going to ask. I, I heard a podcast about um, twins that got separated at birth. I think two sets of twins. And anyway, it was just really interesting how they grew up in such different lives mm-hmm. and lifestyles, um, but they ended up in so many ways, dressing the same way, laughing the same way, and so many things. Like so much of it was genetic and, and had so much less to do with the, the nature of the situation, or so the nurture, but the nature of the situation. Uh, and it sounds like you found a little bit of that as well. For sure, for sure. Um, interesting thing. Um, so I was put up for adoption, uh, and there was another sister after me who was also put up for adoption uh, before you know, wow. uh, my two sisters in. Uh, in uh, Nanaimo uh, were were raised in their family. And my uh, stem cell recipient, as it turns out, is the uh, right age for my missing sister, but uh, wasn't adopted. So I I always figured that was uh, kind of a cool thing. We uh, we sort of consider each other to be, uh, you know, uh, brother and sister, but we're not really related. It's uh, kind of a neat thing. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. Super cool. That that that's uh, an amazing journey um, and, and very touching. Are you still are you still in touch with them? Are you, are you close with them now? I, uh, them? Your, your biological family. Oh yeah, yeah. I uh, I do uh, contact them on a, on a fairly regular basis. Uh, being out in yeah. uh, Nanaimo and I'm all the way here in the flatlands, it's uh, you know can't just pop over for coffee every once in a while. But uh, you know it's nice to be able to call them up and chat and see how things are going. Yeah, yeah, for sure. That's amazing. That, that that's super cool that you got on on that path. And were your adoptive parents okay with it? Are they were they did they get comfortable with the idea? Because um, I can understand how that may create insecurities in parents being a. I, I would expect right so. Um, like I say, it was uh, kind of tough for them at first to uh, understand, you know, my reasoning for for wanting to find them and things like that, but. Uh, uh, my dad actually came with me when I went out to make my donations. So uh, my dad was okay. able to uh, meet my biological mom and uh, and the rest of the family and have a bit of a visit with them. And so I, I thought that nice. was kind of uh, kind of cool to be able to get them together. Yeah, that's awesome. I, I mean, it's beautiful. Families are not necessarily defined by blood relationships, although clearly genetics do have a factor in how people act and and you know, express themselves, but, uh, it's nice to have extended blended families in that way where people can get together. That's beautiful. Growing up, you never, you weren't, uh, into drugs. It sounds like you were, uh, I, I can't remember exactly the words you used, maybe white bread. Is that the expression? I, I would call myself about as boring as white bread. Yes. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I don't necessarily see that as a bad thing. Um, you know, I, uh, I was never uh, into, you know, cannabis or, or any of the psychedelics or, or anything like that uh, going to high school. It, uh, it just wasn't something that uh, I, I felt that 
you know, I needed to be a part of my life. And frankly, the, uh, the campaigning that the war on drugs had done was pretty effective for me. I, uh, most yeah. certainly didn't think that there was anything good or productive or, or useful in any of those things. Um, boy, has that ever come to change? <laughs> Yeah, I, I imagine so. All right, let's uh, let's flip to that topic then. So, uh, well, not quite that. Let's let's keep it somewhat chronological. So, uh, when when did you get your cancer diagnosis? Like, what what was the process of of discovery? You know, it's something that mm-hmm. I certainly spend a lot of too much time probably worrying about. Is like you know my own mortality and, and health, and you know I'm I'm certainly a bit of a hypochondriac. Uh, <laughs> that when anything goes wrong, I always put it to the level of oh my god. I'm, I'm I'm dying, which fortunately, you know, it has not been that case, but I guess eventually it will be, but uh, I can, I can't imagine what that experience must be like. So can you tell us a little bit about about that? Yeah. Well, um, I guess, uh, the first symptoms that I had showing up, uh, started, uh, late in 2015. Um, I, I initially started with a, uh, partial obstruction in my intestines. So, um, that was a sort of a gradual process that got, uh, increasingly worse, uh, through, uh, through, uh, till April of 2016. And, uh, the, the process of getting a bowel obstruction, um, you gradually lose things that you can eat because the, So, you know, your, your intestines start out, uh, like so, and they, they just gradually constrict to the point where eventually it was completely closed and, uh, okay. anything that I ate couldn't pass through me anymore. Um, so okay. that introduced me to, uh, like, a a whole new kind of pain that I had no idea even existed, uh, prior to I'm that. Sure. Um, yeah, I, I would describe that, you know, as uh, exactly what it is. It's it's uh, a ripping of the intestines, and uh, it is unpleasant in just about any way that you can think of. So uh, you eat, it doesn't go through. Yep, it has to come back up the way that it went, and uh, oh, Jesus. It's unpleasant. <laughs> I don't want to close out your your listeners by yeah. by giving them a, a real graphic description of that but um yeah that was a, a time in my life where uh, i uh i really wasn't too sure what was going to happen um i did, did you have a sense of like the diagnosis early on or were you just suffering these symptoms kind of well, being, like... initially uh i was diagnosed with crohn's disease so um, I spent six months on uh, being treated with uh, immune suppressives for Crohn's disease. And, uh, okay. of course, they, they weren't having any effect at all um, because, okay. as it turns out, it wasn't Crohn's disease. It was uh, cancer. So um, yeah. the, the thought was is that I, I had an obstruction in my bowels uh, and when I eventually had to go in for emergency surgery in uh, April of 2016, the idea was that they were just going to uh, remove the obstruction, reconnect the intestines together, and uh, you know, uh, get on with my life. And unfortunately, when uh, 
the uh, the so again, my life very statistically improbable, but I, I seem to connect with the people that I need to connect to when I need to connect with them. And uh, the uh, surgeon who was originally supposed to perform my operation was uh, uh, like the the head of gastroenterology at the hospital I was at. Uh, but he got switched out at the last minute for a different surgeon. And uh, that uh, surgeon happened to be a uh, an oncological surgeon. So oh, okay. when he opened me up, you know, he, uh, he immediately knew exactly what he was looking at. And uh, so with that surgery, they uh, they took out uh, as much as they could find and, and a number of... Uh, uh, lymph nodes, my ascending colon, I got a, an ileostomy uh, at that time, and uh, uh, they took out as much as they could, but uh, there was a pretty extensive amount of cancer at that time. Um, so, you know, I go to sleep for the surgery thinking I'm going to wake up and get on with my day, and uh, I wake up and, uh, you know, I've got, I now got a bag on me that uh, is... Uh, not a part of me. My my insides are now on my outsides. And uh, oh, by yeah. the way, you also have stage four cancer. Jesus. So the uh, the day I actually uh, found out about my uh, my cancer was another one of those uh, one of those days. Uh, so they they take the biopsies and they check them, and uh, you know I, I I suspected that that might be the case, but it was. Uh, couple of weeks before they actually uh, had the biopsies um, yeah, diagnosed and, and got the final thing. I, I don't know. You want to hear about the uh, the worst day of my life? Because uh, that's... Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, if you want to share, yes. You're about to hear some barking because my uh, wife is just pulling into the driveway and my dog is going to be very oh, happy okay. to see her. <laughs> no, no problem. Uh, but yeah, I mean, if, if you want to share, like... For sure. This is terrible and hilarious. <laughs> so, uh, so the day I find out that I've got cancer, um, we're, uh, we're driving to, uh, my family doctor who has made that appointment and, uh, I've got my uh, ileostomy and I don't know if you are familiar with those or not, but the way that an ileostomy works, uh, they take your, um, uh, intestines and they put a hole through the stomach wall. And uh, so you've got literally your intestines poking out through your stomach and they put a uh, bag onto that with an adhesive that sticks around it. And uh, so the only thing that's holding this bag on is this adhesive. So, uh, so we're actually driving to the, uh, to the appointment. And for the first time since I've had this uh, ileostomy put onto me, um, I have a failure on the adhesive for it. So um, what happens when you are nervous or you're upset is, you know, your, your intestines kind of kick into high gear. Now, if you have a normal set of intestines, you know, you might get the butterflies or something like that. But if you have an ileostomy, um, things become much more active and there is no stopping that. It just, does what it does so the the bag popped off of my stomach and i'm driving and i've got this volcano of poo <laughs> so 
we're driving to this very important uh, doctor's appointment. You know, I've I've got literally just covered. And uh, my doctor was good enough to come out of the office and, uh, you know, talk to us in my van because obviously I'm not going to be going in there. And uh, and that's when I found out that, you know, <laughs> I'm, I'm covered in poo, I'm upset, and I just find out I've got stage four cancer too. So so we're driving home and, uh, you know, it's it's 4.30 in the afternoon and it's rush hour traffic and I'm still volcanoing and I have run out of things to wipe it off with and towels. So I'm literally throwing handfuls out the window. And I have to tell you, Saskatoon drivers in rush hour have no idea how lucky they were that day that they did not cut me off. Because <laughs> I tell you, I felt like a monkey. It was, uh, you know, looking back on it, hilarious, right? But, uh, but yeah, that was probably one of the worst days that I've had. Yeah. Um, thank you for sharing. Um, <laughs> Dubious thanks, I'm sure. But, uh, but no, literally, no, no, that's, no. Uh, <laughs> that is what I would consider one of my worst days. Yeah. Well, first of all, thank you for sharing because that's a story that will never get replicated or beat on this podcast. I'm quite <laughs> sure. Um, but, but secondly, uh, you know, I just want to recognize, like, if I was telling that story uh, about a day like that, I would not be able to get through it without being a blubbering mess of a human being. So I just want to acknowledge your strength of character and being able to tell that story and. You know, uh, what's the expression? Except that we're a pimple in creation and have a lively <laughs> sense of humor about it. And you sure seem to have a lively sense of humor about something that uh, yeah. you know, I, I can't even imagine experiencing. I've come to the conclusion that, you know, if you can laugh about the worst day that you've ever had, then, you know, you can pretty much get through anything, honestly. Yeah, it's true. It's very true. It reminds me, I remember, I never liked Marilyn Manson as a singer. He always scared the shit out of me, to be quite honest. Uh, but I saw, maybe it was on Bowling for Columbine or another documentary where he said, if you become your fears, they no longer scare you. And I always thought that was really profound advice. And, and it's kind of the same take on what you're saying, which is if you can laugh at the worst day of your life, then there's only upside from that, right? It helps. It helps. I've... Uh... I've had some, uh, you know, interesting and scary moments since then. Um, but I would have to say that uh, being able to get past that stuff has helped me an awful lot. Can, can you go into any of that at all? At all? And yeah. one the reason I'm asking is because I really want people to understand as much as possible, you know, what your psychedelic experiences have brought you, right? Mm -hmm. And if we can understand just how challenging, you know, this experience must have been, it really presents just how potent these experiences can be. Mm -hmm. And I think that's important to understand the, you know, the drama, the the black and white nature of what we're talking about. Because these are literally, your experiences right now are probably... I'm going to say like 99% of at least North American population's worst fears, cancer and being covered in your own shit in public. <laughs> it's like at the same moment, it's like, you can't really 
write that in a movie much better. <laughs> and here you are laughing about it, um, yeah. and and sharing the story openly and and easily, and and it's just it's just amazing. So I mean, thank you. But uh, you know, any other detail, it, it it is relevant, and I think it's important too. Yeah. So uh, once I got my diagnosis, then you know things really kind of kick into uh, another gear. Uh, so. Uh, you immediately go onto the, uh, the conveyor belt for cancer treatment. Um, for me, uh, what followed was uh, uh, 12 rounds of uh, Fallbox chemotherapy. And uh, I, I don't know if you are familiar with that one, but the, uh, the side effects from that particular type of chemotherapy are uh, fairly unpleasant. Um, the main one being uh, neuropathy. So... Uh, I lost the feeling in my fingers and toes to the point where uh, um, I could no longer like do up buttons on my, my shirt anymore or uh, fine motor skills like that. Um, I lost the ability to uh, just keep my balance just having a shower. You know, I'd have to like uh, put my, my arm on the wall to uh, be able to tell uh, if I was upright or not because I couldn't feel my feet anymore. And uh, uh, the neuropathy, I, I'm uh, kind of grateful for that one because that was uh, uh, a big step for me in my journey towards uh, some alternative treatments that I have found to be really effective and helpful. Um, okay. I did a, a large number of supplements to complement my cancer therapy, but uh, at that point in time, I started looking for something to help me treat my neuropathy that I had. And uh, my search for something uh, that would help with that led me to uh, some studies that they were doing uh, in Japan using uh, lion's mane mushrooms for uh, helping people who had uh, dementia. Uh, lion's mane uh, being a non-psychoactive mushroom, uh, it is a mushroom that is uh, got neurogenic properties, so uh, helps to promote the growth of nerve cells. So um, I started using those, and uh, happy to say that they were uh, very, very helpful with uh, getting almost all the feeling back in uh, my feet. I, I can't even tell there was anything wrong with them. My hands uh, still have that uh, slight tingle to them, as if they're just a little bit asleep, but uh, for okay. the most part, uh, pretty much normal. And uh, while I was doing, you know, that search for uh, mushrooms and cancer, uh, that's when I initially came across the research from uh, Johns Hopkins that uh, they were using uh, the uh, the uh, psychedelic mushrooms for treating anxiety. Now, this was uh, very early on when they were doing that study, and uh, my treatment for my cancer was going very well at that point. Um, I had a second surgery following those 12 rounds of uh, chemo, and uh, that surgery was uh, to perform what they call a HIPEC procedure. So with a HIPEC, they, uh, they take out anything that they can see that still has cancer on it, and then they fill your abdomen up with a hot chemo solution, and uh, because uh, temperature is another thing that uh, cancer is susceptible to. And, uh, okay. but when they, uh, when they did that particular operation, 
um, they could only find one single remaining tumor on the small intestine. So they, they did a resection for that. And uh, the other cancer that, that was in the, the peritoneal tissues and the lymph and, and uh, the intestines, uh, they couldn't find any more of it that was worth taking out. So they reversed wow. the ileostomy at that time, uh, reconnected my intestines back together again, and uh, basically said, we think we got everything, uh, go live your life. And uh, then they put me on uh, regular uh, PET scans every three months. Uh, every single one of those PET scans has come back completely 100% clear. So wow. for the next, uh, would be close to two years, uh, I was getting uh, PET scans and feeling very happy with myself that, uh, you know, woohoo, I beat cancer. Yeah. And uh, gradually I, I started to experience the symptoms of, uh, of uh, low hemoglobin, so anemia. Um, I, I unfortunately, you know, experienced some anemia with my first round of, uh, of cancer. So I'm familiar with uh, what it feels like. And uh, so I went into my family doctor to, uh, to get that checked to see if uh, that was really going on. And uh, my hemoglobin levels got down to uh, 67. So um, the normal range for hemoglobin is between uh, 130 and 180. So, okay. So we knew that I was uh, definitely losing blood. Um, I went in for a uh, colonoscopy um, following that, and uh, right away they found uh, two bleeding tumors on my intestines that are completely invisible to the PET scan. So um, they uh, they scheduled me for uh, my third surgery in uh, – in the summer of 2019 and uh, the same surgeon who uh, performed my first operation was uh, was there for that surgery and uh, the intention at that time they figured you know okay we've got two tumors on the large intestine you know we can deal with that uh, we'll just we'll take out the rest of the intestines and uh, I'll probably uh, wind up with a, a permanent ostomy at that time so they they opened me up and uh, it wasn't just two tumors on my large intestine. It was, it was tumors everywhere. Uh, so the, uh, the surgeon, uh, he cleaned up the incision line and uh, just closed me back up. There's literally nothing Jesus. he could do surgically. So uh, there's, uh, I think, uh, 50, 51 different locations that they checked in the abdomen for, for where they're could be tumors, and I had tumors in 42 of those uh, 50-some locations. So uh, he said, you know, if he wanted to take out the cancer, he'd basically have to ruin my entire digestive system. So there's uh, there's just nothing they could do for that. So uh, I'm sorry to hear that. You know, uh, you 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 wake up from that surgery uh, expecting to have the ostomy this time, and. And instead of having the ostomy, it's, uh, you know, there's, there's nothing else we can do for you. So um, they, uh, they put me on to uh, chemotherapy. This time it's a, a type called, called fall fury, which is the same 
components, but they substitute uh, the oxyplatin component, which is a, a platinum-based one, which is what causes the neuropathy. Uh, they replace that one okay. with uh, Aranacan, I believe is the, the drug. And I've had uh, hmm, 40, 43 treatments since then. Okay. So uh, I have chemotherapy every two weeks, and uh, and uh, yeah, that has been my life ever since. Wow. Yes. So that that recurrence of the cancer in 2019 is really where my uh, journey with anxiety started, because. Okay. When I got to, when I got that diagnosis, um, you know, not only is the cancer not gone, it's back. It's much much worse than we thought it was, and uh, it is completely invisible to PET scans, CT scans, ultrasound, MRI, blood work. It's like my cancer Jesus. doesn't show up on any of these things. So. Um, my surgeon told me that, you know, uh, there's very good chance that, uh, you know, I will either get another one of those bowel obstructions that I had back in uh, 2016 and, uh, yep. they will not be able to operate on that because I'm not a surgical candidate anymore. So if I get an obstruction, that just means I'm going to die. Um, or, um, I have a lot of tumors on the intestine. So those cause weak spots. So, uh, an equal possibility that uh, I will get uh, perforation in the intestines and equally not, not uh, repairable. So, that also means that I would die. And uh, finding that out, um, well, that, that, was, that was pretty rough for me. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> uh, it, uh, it sort of told me that not only do I not know the state that the cancer's in but i could literally die you know that afternoon and nobody could tell me it's coming and there's nothing they could do to stop it yeah. so um yeah yeah i had an awful lot of anxiety about stuff like that um yeah. you know, I, initially, sure initially for the idea of dying but uh, you know once i i kind of uh, worked past that it's uh you know, the idea that I wouldn't be there at some point when my family needed me for something. Um, I have, uh, you know, two amazing children, but they, they do happen to be on the autism spectrum. And, uh, you know, that means that uh, there are things that they need extra help with and uh, extra life challenges that uh, regular kids growing up just aren't going to have to face. So... You know, uh, we, we do a lot of stuff to uh, to help them along. So the idea that at some point, you know, they're going to need me for something and I'm not going to be there, pretty rough. Yeah. Yeah. I I mean, I, I certainly don't understand your experience by any stretch of the imagination, but I do know that sense of that emptiness of feeling of not being there when your kids need you, you know, that, that, that that's the thing, you know, it, it's funny how kids can be like the most life affirming thing that you ever have, but they also create such an extreme fear around, you know, losing, you know, 
being there and all that kind of stuff. It's uh, yeah, I, I, I have uh, as much empathy as I can offer, which is not nearly enough because I can't possibly understand what that feels like. But thank you for sharing. And once again, your your strength and your candor and your humor through all this is um, you know very inspiring. So thank you, thank you for sharing all this. After the first diagnosis, was the anxiety manageable? Like I, I can't mm-hmm. can't even imagine the second round, but the first time, how how was that? You know, uh, I don't know whether you've caught it or not, but uh, I'm a really positive person. Yes. And and for me, um, that positive attitude um, was really enough to carry me through my first round of chemo. Um, and, 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 you know, the, the first go with cancer. I, uh, <clears throat> I genuinely uh, felt that I had a very good chance of beating it. And, uh, you know, I, I took that to heart. I definitely uh, kept that in my mind. And uh, I did a tremendous amount of research because being a, a professional nerd, that's what we do. And, uh, you know, I found, uh, I found adjuvant therapies that uh, had shown clinical efficacy for uh, being able to enhance the type of chemo that I was doing and were able to shrink tumors. And, uh, you know, when they opened me up for that second surgery and, uh, and I learned that, you know, uh, what I was doing actually worked, um, that really kind of wiped the slate clean for me in terms of anxiety. You know, I spent the next couple of years blissfully happy and uh yeah it was going fantastic for me uh you know obviously whenever you get a, a diagnosis of cancer and and you're stage four right out of the gate i mean there's there's going to be anxiety and there's, there's no getting around that but um i never really um allowed myself to believe that i would not be successful in my treatment so so you know um I think positive attitude helps. Um, getting, sure. Growing up, were, were you a? Go ahead. Oh, get, getting the second, uh, getting the second uh, diagnosis, uh, you know, unfortunately, just kind of blew a lot of that out of the water for me. Uh, it was, yeah. it was just uh, like a tidal wave, you know. There, there's so much you can deal with, and uh, and that went outside of the scope for what I could handle, unfortunately. Uh, I'm sure that goes out of the scope of what 99.99% of people uh, could handle, because even in light of everything, your your optimism and your positivity shines through. So um, for for lesser people who don't necessarily carry that, that level of optimism and positivity, I'm sure... Uh, there's no way they could they could handle that for for, for sure, um, and I can only imagine. I mean, it's not just the anxiety. Uh, I imagine the powerlessness must have been just just brutal, right? That feeling of rage, of especially coming from the place of oh, I thought I beat it. Oh, I, I got this figured out. Like life worked out. Life gave me, you know, I I, I rolled the dice and I got a good roll. And then to kind of have it just like your feet knocked out of you and. You know, it, uh, I can't imagine. It was 
it was a lot to deal with. And uh, yeah. so, I, I mean, you know, the, the story after that is uh, the one I've had a chance to tell quite a few times. Uh, you know, my journey uh, being able to, uh, to revisit the research that I found on uh, psychedelics and, uh, you know, their use in treating uh, end-of-life anxiety. Um, I have to say that I was, in spite of all of the evidence and the research, um, I did not understand how it worked at that time. Um, so, you know, I was, uh, I was hopeful and I had some ideas of how I thought it would probably, uh, be helpful, but, uh, it is one of those things that, uh, the experience itself is so very different from what I had read about uh, with other people's experiences. You know, you have these uh, preconceived notions of what you think it's going to be like or what you think you're going to experience and, you know, what's it going to look like and what's it going to feel like. And uh, the experience itself was so very different from that, um, uh, it was it was for me uh, an amazing experience that just changed my whole point of view on the idea of uh, of death and dying. You know, we, we were raised up in in you know uh, I wouldn't consider myself to be religious. Uh, you know, I went to church when I was younger, just like uh, you know many people do and uh, you know the church teaches you it does yeah you know uh, you know the church teaches you that there's a, that there's a heaven and there's a, a life after death and for me it was uh, very much an intellectual thing so you know you you have this uh, idea that okay well sure there's going to be life after death but uh, you know i've never really been able to accept that idea of uh, you know uh, you know, the bearded dude in the clouds keeping an eye on you. That's that's not really the way that I picture things. And I, I didn't really have any framework to understand, you know, the concept of consciousness continuing without a me. Mm-hmm. And uh, that is really what psychedelics have given me, is the, the actual experience experience of what consciousness is that has nothing to do with Thomas. So right. I, I, I don't know. I, I, I want to, I don't know. I want to go to that into that. Yeah. 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 I, I don't want to take a, a, a sidetrack on that because it's a, it's a subject I definitely get sidetracked on, but uh, you know, uh, that's, I, I, that's the I next step of my journey. Totally sidetracked. <laughs> yeah. No, I want you to get totally sidetracked on that. But before we get there, just, Take us through what happened. So you've got this uh, much more dire diagnosis. You you know pick up the research uh, happening at Johns Hopkins with end of life distress, and and where do, where does it go from there? Take us from that moment to I guess the, your first session with uh, with Bruce Tobin, right? Did you do it with Bruce? Correct. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So yeah. So you just fill in that gap, and we'll, talk, I, uh... then we'll sidetrack deep into it. <laughs> For sure, for sure. So, um, I guess the the next thing that happened for me, uh, uh, 
you know, you, you make, uh, and one part that I have kind of skipped over is, uh, when I started my initial cancer treatment back in 2016, uh, with chemotherapy, um, that was really my first introduction to any non off the shelf pharmaceutical for dealing with, uh, medical conditions. Um, and for me, um, the first really out there one for me was uh, using cannabis to treat the side effects of the chemotherapy, uh, which, uh, you know, I, I can't speak for anybody else on chemotherapy, but, uh, chemo really just kicks my butt. You know, there's, there's no two ways around it. It's, uh, uh, unpleasant pretty much from start to finish on uh, on a treatment and i have a number of prescription medications that i take for dealing with uh, you know the nausea and the pain and and everything that goes along with it and uh, frankly the chemotherapy just blows through that stuff like tissue paper um right so i uh i discovered that uh, cannabis and specifically, I, I make my own cannabis oil. So I extract the concentrate from the plant and uh, take that orally. Um, that, for me, is you know, a complete godsend. Um, there isn't any way that I would be alive today if I did not use cannabis for, for dealing with that because... Uh, the level of nausea that I feel on a daily basis is uh, so much that I would not be able to eat enough calories to live. So for me, that's kind of what uh, plant-based medicine has done. It's, you know, it has literally saved my life. Now, forget about, uh, you know, the, the cancer treatments and things like that. Um, if you can't eat, you can't live. So uh, for me, that was the introduction that, uh, you know, something that isn't from a pharmaceutical manufacturer can have these amazing benefits. Yeah. Has, has the chemo gotten any easier over time uh, or is it still just as hard or just better at managing it with the, uh, the you know, techniques? I'm going to say that uh, since my experience with psilocybin, the chemo has been tremendously easier to deal with. Um, the the anxiety and the anticipation of uh, the unpleasantness that goes with chemotherapy uh, for me was greatly amplified. Uh, you know, the, the anxiety and the anticipation just kind of went together in a very, uh, well, I, I mean, if you were looking for an effective way to, to have anxiety, that's a good way. Um, Cannabis, unfortunately, is is also something that amplifies anxiety for me as well. And uh, it does, okay. It it's unfortunately does. Yeah, yeah. Um, great for dealing with chemo side effects, but not effective for dealing with anxiety for me. I, I think there are some people who you know um, have a little better luck with that particular thing. Uh, I know people who you know use cannabis and they use that to get to sleep. Uh, and deal with things like anxiety, but uh, not me, unfortunately. But, you know, I at least had the experience of knowing that uh, a, a natural substance like that could have potential benefits. So um, 
it okay. opened my mind up to the possibility that something like that could be beneficial. So okay. having that door open, that's uh, that was my first step. And take us from there. Um, where where did you go from there after deciding that this is something I want to look into more? And yeah, go from there. Yeah. So um, my mind is open, and I realized that uh, you know uh, natural substances, in this case, a, a, a fungi, uh, could potentially have the ability to uh, help me deal with this anxiety. And I did not really know how that would possibly work. You know, I, I mean. I uh, still have the uh, that war on drugs sort of this is your brain on drugs uh, idea of what uh, things like yeah. psychedelics are, and uh, you know how could the experience of of uh, you know seeing strange visions possibly uh, help me with anxiety? I have no idea, but these studies have uh, you know success rates up to eighty percent efficacy off of a single dose and uh, being a computer person and being somebody who has been interested in science my whole life I tend to have a fairly good trust in science uh, in numbers really you, either you believe it or you don't and I believe yep. in it and uh, that hasn't steered me too far wrong so um, I decided that you know I'm going to give this a try um, I have literally nothing to lose. Uh, you know, the, the worst thing is going to happen is I still have anxiety. So, you know, why wouldn't I explore this further? So I started looking for um, any place where I could get in on a, uh, a test uh, here in Canada uh, to see if there was any research going on. And uh, uh, back when I uh, was looking at it, there was literally nothing absolutely nothing going on so um your next step is well you know where where can i find somebody who knows anything about this you know i, I most certainly just don't want to pop a bunch of shrooms and see what happens you know and, and for that matter where would i get them from you know that's uh that's the other problem i don't want to be uh, you know talking to guido on the corner who might be lacing the the product with fentanyl to you know, stretches profit margin. Yeah, at at uh, at that point, you know, you have to make some decisions. You know, uh, do I want to be looking into the, the shadowy underworld, or you know, uh, what are my options? And uh, yeah. I was fortunate that uh, again, I, I find the people that I need to find when I need them, and a search for. Uh, uh, Somebody who was familiar with the use of psilocybin for treating cancer patients uh, came across Therosil, and uh, they were taking uh, applications for patients um, that they were looking to assist with this Section 56 application process that uh, so many of us have gone through now at this point. And uh, I was yeah. one of the first four people that they assisted with that process. Um, okay. There, uh, there were three other people in front of me who had their applications in for uh, about a month before I did mine, and uh, it took uh, a couple of months before mine was eventually approved. Um, so, very, very grateful to the folks at uh, Health Canada and the Department of Controlled Substances. Uh, you know, they 
they had the ability to say no. Um, I honestly, uh, my, my humble opinion, I, I don't think a no would have stopped me, but I'm very grateful that, uh, that was not the answer because for me, it is important to not only, you know, do it in a legal way that other people can copy and, and follow along. But, uh, I mean, I'm, looking at taking this substance because I have anxiety. Do I really want to also have the anxiety of going to jail for treating the anxiety? So, um, uh, very fortunate that they approved that in uh, August of, uh, 2020. And, uh, Dr. Tobin volunteered to come here to Saskatoon from, from BC and, uh, and do my session. What was it like when, when you got the uh, approval? Uh, on the one hand, I, I have this kind of image of total ecstasy, you know, and excitement, and I'm sure there's a part of that. But I also get the sense that not knowing what you're getting into, it's like, this is great, but what did I just get myself into kind of thing Honestly, may have come up, but I'm curious to know. There was so much anxiety in my life at the uh, you know, the time when they, uh, they gave me the approval that it is a bit of a fine line between being happy and grateful that I had the opportunity to do this and that exactly like you say, you know, uh, what have I gotten myself into and have I bitten off more than I can chew? And, uh, you know, uh, am I going to be one of those, uh, people who, uh, you know, this isn't compatible with? Am I going to be giving myself a psychotic break? And now I not only have cancer, but I've lost my mind. And, you know, all of these things that I, uh, you have these ideas of what the experience is going to be like based on, you know, other people's experiences. And you just don't know. But you, you swallow down the fear and you move forward with things. And, you know, this is how we make progress. Um, I have found in my life that anytime I encounter something that is, you know, terrifying and you can't deal with, you know, from uh, getting married and having kids to being a stem cell donor to, you know, going through with cancer and, and this type of treatment, um, courage seems to be rewarded. There's no other way to put it. It's uh, awesome. If you uh, if you just decide that I'm going to do this and accept the outcome, most of the time it works out. We uh, seems to be rewarded. It's that's it's beautiful. That's like uh, if there's any nugget of wisdom that I think anyone has taken from her now. I think this is our 27th podcast or something like that. I think that's like the most beautiful, most succinct, most on point, and uh, probably the most valuable. And you, you speak the truth. You know, you speak from your heart on, on that particular point. So uh, thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. I, yeah. Would, I would extend that right into the psychedelic experience itself. And, uh, you know, I haven't had a chance to, to discuss, you know, your uh, level of experience with psychedelics, but I would have to uh, assume that you have some familiarity with the subject. And uh, 
on that topic, you know, you hear about people who have uh, bad trips. Um, I would call those challenging sessions myself. And that whole idea of uh, courage being rewarded extends into that for me. Um, people have these challenging experiences where they, they experience something that is unpleasant and um, you have to accept that the experience is exactly what it is supposed to be. And if you embrace that challenge or embrace the fearful thing, that is where you get these really deep, meaningful results coming out of your sessions. I have found from people that I talk to and my own personal experience. So I don't know what you have uh, brought out of that, but for me, that is really a, a key point that you have to just be brave and embrace it and move forward through it. Yeah. Um... I mean, the illusion of control is one of the greatest fallacies that a lot of people believe in. Uh, and, and the belief that people actually want to be in control is a, another fallacy, but that's an entirely separate conversation. Uh, in my experience, I've, I've genuinely only had positive experiences. I haven't had a challenging experience, but mm. they've been magical. Um, but that's probably a function of the fact that even though my experience with psychedelics is still fairly limited, to be quite honest, mm. I've done a lot of, of, soul searching and, and spiritual questing and, and meditation and, and work with metaphysics that I think I've done a lot of the stuff that may bring up the challenging experiences, but who knows, you know, I get, I'm, I'm, I'm just on the early roads of my journey as well. Um, but, uh, and I'm happy to share more about it, but, uh, so take me to the day of your first experience and, Take me through that experience and, and share as much detail as you feel comfortable sharing. And just to sort of set the framework, I actually just did a very significant session this past Thursday, uh, and I'm not going to belabor my experience, but suffice it to say that it started with me being on stage with the Rolling Stones at in 1977 at the Alma Combo in Toronto. Um, and it kind of went from there. Um, and I wasn't born in 1977, so uh, <laughs> I speak for what it is. Um, but feel free to offer as, as much detail about your experience and what you saw and what came up and, and what you took away from it. And, and actually, before you answer that, how many experiences have you had now um, since getting your Section 56? Two. Two. Okay. So, uh, you know, I will not okay. claim so, to have a, a comprehensive number of experiences like a, a lot of people that I've talked to. You know, I know people who uh, do microdoses. I know people who have done, you know, a, a large number of macrodoses. And, uh, you know, for, for myself, I am literally just taking it for the purpose of alleviating my anxiety. And um, you know, the fact that I have done just two sessions is a really important point that I think people need to know about. Uh, you know, this treatment is so very different from a traditional antidepressant that people take. Um, you know, uh, people have a notion of what a medical treatment is. And for the majority of people these days, that is, you know, taking something like an antidepressant that uh, you must take every day on 
a consistent basis in order to deliver the results. Um, the, the key difference between a traditional treatment and a psychedelic assisted therapy is that a traditional uh, antidepressant for me personally uh, changed the way that I felt while the medication is in effect. Psychedelic assisted therapy has changed the way I think about the things that were causing the anxiety. So for me, it's not a way of uh, just applying a coat of paint on top of the problem. It's yep. actually changing how I think about what is causing it. And by changing the way that I think about it, it has uh, removed my base level of anxiety that I was experiencing. So, Can we go uh, into more depth about that? Absolutely. Okay. So uh, I, I, can, I can carry you through uh, the experience and tell you how, how I arrived at that. Uh, I think would probably be the best way to go. Um, I had mentioned okay. already that uh, for me, cannabis is something that um, doesn't help with anxiety. Uh, in fact, the uh, the doses of cannabis that I have to take uh, honestly uh, lead to some very uh, screechingly uncomfortable levels of anxiety for me. Um, right. You know, it's it's uh, much worse with that. So um, I have this uh, standing base level of anxiety, and then I take something that enhances that, and it it increases the anxiety to a point where uh, I'm just was not able to function at all. Uh, you know, you can't, can't leave a room. You have to be someplace that's, uh, you know, uh, quiet and dark. So you don't have any inputs because you just can't handle anything anymore. Or you, you have to be with people just in case you're gonna, you know, drop dead that afternoon. You know, you <laughs> It's such a variety of, uh, of uh, horrible feelings that I wouldn't wish on anybody. So, you know, for me, um, having to do something about this was not an option for me anymore. Uh, you know, it, it's either you do something about it or you just can't function as a person anymore. So um, I recognized that... Um, this was my opportunity to, uh, to get some sort of relief from it. Um, the lead up to doing therapy, I, I always tell people it's uh, for any kind of a three-part process. So um, with your therapist, you do uh, a number of sessions prior to that where you establish what uh, your expectations are going to be, uh, the types of things you can expect to experience, uh, what you're hoping to get out of the experience, um, you know, and, and what some reasonable expectations might be. And, uh, you know, I had a number of weeks talking with uh, Bruce about that. And, uh, you know, I think I felt very well prepared for doing the session. Um, I, you know, of course, read uh, Michael Pollan's book and, uh, and a number of other ones. So, uh, like a, a psychedelic explorer's guide. Uh, there's there's a number of very good resources out there that people can access um, that will give you an idea of what the the experience has been for other people. So I had this uh, idea in my head of what I could experience, and I was 
at least comfortable enough with that to say we're going to do this. Um, then on uh, August uh, the 12th, that was my uh, first session day. Uh, Dr. Tobin was here, and uh, uh, I wanted to make sure that my experience, because I was the first person in Canada to uh, to go through this, uh, I wanted to make sure that the experience itself was well documented. So uh, uh, I had uh, uh, Peg Peters, who uh, has worked with Daracil for uh, some of their media information, uh, was also yeah. here uh, doing a video recording of everything. You know. Uh, the uh, the entire process, me, uh, you know, uh, blubbering with uh, Bruce over my anxiety going into the sessions and and uh, filming the the session itself and and you know the integration following that. So on the morning of the twelfth, uh, we had uh, Bruce and a good uh, friend of mine, John, who uh, was experienced with uh, ayahuasca and uh, happens to be a, a Good friend of mine who uh, I met through my father-in-law. Uh, well, that's, that's another chunk of the story I, I haven't included in here yet. Uh, okay. I, don't, I don't know if we want to insert that or not, but uh, uh, let's keep going down the, the path of the experience, and, and depending on time, we we can come back and revisit it. Sure. So uh, we've got everybody uh, gathered in my uh, spare bedroom here at uh, my home here in Saskatoon, and uh, uh, I have the mushrooms that I have grown myself, uh, dried and powdered and put into capsules. And, uh, we're, uh, we're ready to go. Um, we have decided that doing my, uh, consumption of the psilocybin would probably be best in a staged number of doses. So I take the first dose at uh, 11 o'clock in the morning, and then I take another dose at uh, 45 minutes later, and the final dose uh, 45 minutes after that. So by the time I'm taking my last dose, the first dose is uh, starting to take effect. And uh, because the first dose is starting to take effect, the amount of anxiety that I am feeling has already decreased to the point where I feel completely comfortable taking further uh, further dose. So it went uh, two and a half grams, two and a half grams, and another two grams for a total of seven grams. And uh, that's a big dose. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, that's a fair sized dose. Um, I really expected that I would experience a lot of the distortions in uh, the visual experience or auditory um, that I've heard a lot of people talk about. Uh, I was very surprised how easy it was for me to remain completely present if I chose to. Um, but um, the, the therapy session itself uh, was largely uh, blindfold on, headphones, listening to music, and uh, the music for me was very kinetic. Uh, so uh, where normally music is, is fairly kinetic for me, this was so much more so. Um, 
I felt that even the spaces in between the music felt like the potential for something. And uh, as a new piece of music would start to play, it would start to build these very comprehensive environments. It was uh, other universes is experientially what it felt like. And once a universe was formed, then my consciousness would just become that universe. So, you know, I didn't have anywhere to go. I didn't have anywhere to do. I was literally everything that existed in that space. And uh, different types of music would form these different spaces. Um, for me, I, I was having uh, trouble deciding whether the music itself determined the themes for these spaces. Uh, because I, I found, so for example, some um, South American music that I was listening to generated this uh, space that felt very uh, Aztec or, or Mayan in design, the, the style of it. Uh, while not exactly the same as the artwork that you would see in like Aztec ruins, it was very mm -hmm. reminiscent of it. It was almost a, like a blend between uh, technology and nature in that particular instance. Um, it was similar with other types of music where I found that the music uh, shared these themes with the type of art that you would associate with that culture. So I don't know if my own predispositions produced those spaces or if artists of those cultures experienced psychedelics and music and produced the same artwork as a result of that. So yeah. that is uh, one that I am still scratching my head at to this point. But uh, What's your gut say on that right now? God is telling me that they have also experienced the psychedelics and that this is a shared common space. Um, to me, the the music and the vibration that is produced from that uh, very much seem to create that space. And I believe that if I had psychedelics again and listened to the same music, it would produce the same space. Um, you, you spoke a, a little bit earlier on... Um, on the idea of uh, all matter having consciousness. And I'm trying to remember the, uh, uh, what is the name yeah, of that? Panpsychism. Panpsychism, thank you. The, uh, the psychedelic experience for me really um, very much awakened that panpsychism idea in me. Um, so yeah. um, while I was under the influence of the uh, psilocybin, um, I still knew that I had a body and that it existed. And, uh, you know, I would come back and check on it from time to time, kind of the, the way you would check on, you know, your, your pets or a house, house plant or something like that. Um, but when I allowed myself to completely be immer immersed in the uh, the music and and the internal experience um thomas did not exist um you know I, I didn't have any notion of you know that i even had a family let alone you know their their names or anything to do with this life 
um, it was a completely separate experience, but it was still consciousness and it still had uh, awareness and things that I could experience and explore and discover and thoughts that I could have, but none of those things had anything to do with this life. And when I say that the experience changed the way that I think about the idea of uh, life and death, that's really where it comes from for me. Um, it gave me the actual tangible physical experience of what consciousness could be that has nothing to do with this life. And from that experience, I really uh, have uh, the solid tactile experience that the transition from living to whatever is next could be as simple as the transition from waking to sleep. And it's just another state of consciousness, but it doesn't have to have anything to do with this life. And it's okay. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, I, I, I like to say that in this question, and I pose this question to a lot of people, but I think you've given one of the most beautiful answers, uh, but I'm asking you to F the ineffable, right? Because mm -hmm. it's, it's so hard to describe that feeling, but the feeling, and I haven't had it exactly that context, but you described it as an idea, but then you talked about it being tactile. And, and the only way I can describe it is, it's not just an idea, it's a knowing. Like it's an inherent, I just know. I can't prove it. I can't mm -hmm. validate it. I can't explain it. Yep. I I, uh, well, let me, let me give you my spin on it. How about that? And sure. um, I'm gonna, uh, going to delve into this panpsychism idea a, a little bit to get there. I hope you don't mind. Yeah. Um, so panpsychism is the idea that uh, the fundamental nature of reality is consciousness and that all things in it are uh, consciousness built from smaller conscious components. For example, there's, there's a number of different spins, but, but that one will uh, do for my purposes. So, uh, you know, you don't have an atom necessarily. You have consciousness which creates the atom as a part of its conscious experience. So um, in the same way that you can have, say, a, a bucket full of iron filings. So uh, those iron filings, uh, they have a, a conscious experience, which you know, is, is whatever it is to be an iron filing, but it doesn't necessarily have a form or a purpose. Now, if you take those iron filings and you melt them down, you can turn them into a tuning fork, for example. So now those, uh, those individual units of consciousness now have a combined conscious experience of being a tuning fork. The tuning fork can produce a sound. I believe that in the same way that our body houses our consciousness. Our actual consciousness would be the sound that is produced by the tuning fork. So that sound is a, uh, a an energetic uh, an energetic creation. But once it is created, it exists even if the tuning fork doesn't anymore. In the same way that our bodies uh, can come and go, 
uh, our consciousness is no longer dependent on the body existing for its own existence. That's a, that's a great uh, a great example. It's an easy way to one of, try uh, to make sense of it. One of many crazy ideas I have. <laughs> uh, it, it's a good one. Um, well, well, thank you so much for for sharing that. I, I do appreciate it. Um, are there any other particular insights that have come out of these experiences that you'd like to share? Um, you know, I think the the sense of being connected to the universe and, and consciousness existing outside of the body is something that a lot of people at least rationally can wrap their heads around, even though they can't necessarily achieve that state yeah, of knowing. Um, you know, um, people talk about the experience being you know ineffable, and uh, honestly, for me, the experience was really very clear. Uh, I can tell you about any part of that. You know, I can I can tell you what it feels like to uh, to be these other spaces. You know, uh, what does the experience of sensation without a body feel like? You know, I I can give you a reasonably good idea that uh, you know uh, I know what it feels like, even if I can't tell you what it uh, what it is like. For me, the the experience of being, you know, these spaces, uh, I, I experienced that in a couple of ways, both uh, tactile and in a difference in thought processes. Um, if you uh, if you don't have a body that you're worrying about, um, one thing that I experienced in those spaces is that. Um, we, we talk about having these challenging, difficult experiences, right? For me, the psychedelic experience was the complete opposite of that. So for me, um, it was relaxing and peaceful and serene. Um, like every part of that experience for me was positive and good and enriching. Um, the, the realization came to me while I was experiencing these other spaces, uh, you know, for, for lack of better terminology, uh, these other universes is, uh, is what it felt like to me. Um, the only place where I actually experienced, you know, pain and anxiety was here. Um, this, this was the only unpleasant place that there was. And that was such a, a warming, comforting thought for me that, you know, the, the only place where I experienced these horrible things, you know, like the, the cancer and, and the chemo and the discomfort is here. And, uh, you know, the idea that someday this is going to end, but I won't, was just so profoundly comforting to me it's uh, it's difficult to put it any other way but it's it's like death is not only not a bad thing but it's it's a necessary and a normal thing right. and it's okay that's it's uh, it's a part of our that's part of our process right. it's how we grow yeah yeah that, that's uh 
that's that's really magical i mean i, I don't have a better word to say that but if people if all people could understand that like on an intuitive knowing level and not be so scared <laughs> of death and i'm certainly not saying i'm a person who's achieved this i'm not but if you think through what it could be like to not be afraid of death how much more enjoyable would life be you know how different would you live your life yeah um, to be, to be very this, uh, this comes back to the reason, you know, why I'm, um, you know, talking to to people like yourself and why I'm participating in in uh, these meetings that we've been participating in. Um, you know, people, uh, the, the MAID system, for example, that's a medical assistance in, in dying. Um, I believe that it's it's a good and important thing that a lot of people make use of. But I, I fear that some people are making use of the MAID system because uh, they have anxiety and they have uh, depression like I used to suffer from. And uh, my concern is that they use that system just because they want this to stop. You know, can't can't take it anymore. And, and I got to admit, I, I understand completely where they're coming from. Uh, you know, I, I would be uh, lying if I said that, you know, I never had a thought like that. I'm uh, grateful that I was able to uh, to go through what I've gone through uh, to uh, to work my way past that. But um, when you just want to stop, that's very different than being able to embrace that it's okay and being good with it. You, know, uh, you you can have a, a life that's full of suffering right up to the end, um, but having the, the psychedelic therapy offers a way of improving the quality of life while you still have it left. You know, you can actually live and experience, you know, what we are supposed to experience as opposed to just suffering until it stops. <laughs> yeah. Um, so just for everybody listening, Thomas and I have been working together with Michael Kidd and a number of others lobbying the Canadian government to open up access to psychedelic assisted therapies, ideally for all Canadians, um, who are suffering with any mental health challenges, but in particular, uh, Canadians facing end of life distress. Um, and I'm pleased to report that nearly every conversation I've participated in, um, most politicians we speak to seem very open and receptive to the idea. They recognize the need, they recognize the humanitarian considerations, they can re realize the compassion involved in it. So I'm feeling very hopeful. But um, Thomas, just out of respect for your time, because we've taken a lot of it, you, you've spoken elegantly in all of those conversations with politicians, but I imagine and there's always a decree of decorum that you put on in those meetings. Uh, and so uh, as we wind down this podcast, I would invite you, um, all decorum aside, speaking from the heart, what would you like to tell all the politicians, all the leaders, all the decision makers out there uh, about psychedelic therapies and how they should think about it? No holds barred. Well, uh, you know, the, the fact of the matter is, is that politicians are just people like we are. And uh, I'm very happy that in 
many of the conversations I have been able to relate to the, the human aspect of all of these representatives. And uh, the majority of people that I have spoken with have been at least uh, open and receptive to hearing about it. I can't say that uh, all of them have necessarily been, you know, on board or in agreement or, or, or um, have had the understanding necessary yet. And uh, I believe it is up to people like myself and, and yourself and uh, other Canadians who have had a chance to uh, benefit from this to educate those people that the decision that they are making regarding psychedelic-assisted therapy is not so much a decision on, you know, is this a valid medical procedure or not? The evidence is already there. I mean, there's, there's been a large number of studies that have proven that this is effective. And from personal experience, I can tell you that it is unlike any other treatment that's out there. The longer that we delay doing something about this is a longer delay for Canadians who are suffering on a daily basis. Now, these are, are people who don't just have terminal illnesses, but they're people who suffer from you know, anxiety and depression. And we are going to see an avalanche of anxiety and depression uh, happening as a result of the terrible things that COVID has done to our Canadian economy. You know, there are thousands of people who are out of work and those jobs are just not coming back. Um, we have the choice of enslaving people to uh, a pharmaceutical system that has proven that it can't cure anxiety and depression. It can mask the symptoms. Um, we are at a position where we have the potential to cure, cure thousands of people of these conditions with a natural substance that has almost no toxicity. I can't see how anybody would deny people the opportunity to live their life to the fullest. I don't know about you, Ronan, but uh, for me, it's it's almost unconscionable to withhold this from the people that it will benefit. And I'm not saying it's going to help everybody. I mean, that would be a ridiculous statement. But there are thousands of people that it will. I don't see why we would not do that. 100%. 100%. And it, you know, it's not even anxiety and depression and these DSM diagnoses. It's like I have lived my entire life feeling inadequate. And for the first time in my life, I don't <laughs> feel inadequate anymore. Um, so it can go a long way for, for a lot of people. So thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Thank you for sharing your story. Uh, it is powerful. Thank you for persevering. Um, and thank you for being you. It's, uh, it's been a true pleasure to have you on the podcast. It's been a pl true pleasure uh, to be beside you in all those meetings uh, in those politicians. And <laughs> I hope and look forward to one day having the opportunity to meet in person and sit, shake your hand because you are, you're breaking down walls, you're, you're breaking down barriers. And there's no person I think who is more elegant um, and more resilient to 
help create these changes than you, Thomas. So thank you for everything you do. Well, I am, uh, I have been very blessed in my life. I consider myself to be the luckiest person that I know. And, uh, you know, if I can share a little bit of that with uh, everybody else, then I think that isn't a bad thing. Connor, let's make a note. I, I was I was going to go with statistically improbable as being the the uh, title for this episode, but I think the luckiest person I know is uh, a better title. <laughs> yeah, the people don't understand how lucky I am. My wife is always giving me crap <laughs> for uh, wasting my luck on good parking spots and short lines at the uh, checkout. <laughs> Awesome. Well, thank you, Thomas, really. It really has been a delight to get to know you. Um, and I look forward to sharing more stories in the future. Hopefully I haven't bored you too bad. Not at all. Uh, that was great. It's been said that birth and death are easy. It's life that is hard. And in listening to Thomas's story, I couldn't help but think how true that is. Ultimately, the moment we let go of what we call life is an easy one. Nature takes over and we let go. And it's something we are all going to face. There's nothing hard about it. What is hard though, is facing up to the reality of it. And that's something that Thomas has had to look squarely in the eye for close to five years now. But through that process, and particularly through psychedelics, he's come to one of the most serene conclusions that I think anyone could hope for, that we are more than just the definition of our physical bodies that there's an us outside of us, that we are part of a bigger loving consciousness, and that that belief has given him what seems to be a tremendous amount of comfort in his journey. But I don't think that's the total story. It's also been said that people fear death because they realize, unconsciously at least, that their lives are mere parodies of what living should be. They ache to quit playing at living and to really live. And I get the sense that Thomas, with his bright outlook and optimism, has maybe his entirely life been really living, which only got revealed to him through his psychedelic experience. I've started saying with an increasing degree of frequency that there is magic in those mushrooms, and Thomas's story couldn't be a more perfect example of that truth. To wrap today's episode, let's check on your questions to trip on. Hey, Ronan. Um, Just a quick question. What do you think is the biggest misconception about psychedelics? Fortunately for me, this is an easy one to answer. Most psychedelic substances like psilocybin, LSD, and MDMA are still scheduled in many Western countries, which means they've been determined to have no medical or therapeutic value. In fact, many people still believe that they are highly addictive and will ruin your brain. In both cases, almost nothing is further from the truth. Trial after trial after trial has demonstrated that these molecules can have profound and significant medical, therapeutic, and emotional benefits, and they carry some of the lowest risks associated with any drugs, let alone narcotics. Certainly, no drugs are entirely safe, but when it comes to psychedelics, these are just about as safe as it comes. As a quick reminder, you can now record a question for us, and we will play it on the show. It's a great way for us to feel connected to you, our amazing listeners. To record your question, go to speakpipe.com slash fieldtripping, or you can send us your questions, comments, or any episode ideas via email to fieldtripping at castmedia.com. That's cast with a K. Thanks for listening to Field Tripping, a podcast that's dedicated to exploring psychedelic experiences and their ability to affect our lives. 
I'm your host, Ronan Levy. Until next time, stay curious, breathe properly, and remember, every day is a field trip if you let it be one. Field Tripping is created by Ronan Levy. Our producers are Conrad Page and John Savak, and associate producers are Sharon Bella, Alex Sherman, and Maisie Baker. Special thanks to Cast Media. Finally, please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast, and sign up for our newsletter at fieldtripping.fm or wherever you get your podcasts. 